the court. So um, I'm Adam Fry. I'm here with John Beebe on uh, March 6, 2021. And uh, our subject today is going to be uh, some big picture questions about the um, eight function model and how it fits uh, organically in the history of the study of psychological type. So I want to start by asking um, about the um, what Jung says in the foreword to the uh, 1934 Argentinian edition of psychological types that you often like to quote where he says that the purpose of the type theory is to sort out and organize the welter of empirical material of psychic processes. So what do we know about how he actually did that in his analytic work? <laughs> well, first of all, I hear that because I'm a working psychotherapist and still practice psychotherapy these days online because I'm in other countries where it's more convenient for me and them literally seven days a week I spend time talking to people usually one to one for 50 minute hours in which they bring up various issues and I'm assuming that I'm doing something very similar to what Jung did and in fact I think I do it not only similarly in content to what he did, but also in process, because he was also talking to his patients, unlike the way the Freudian model eventually codified where the analyst said much less and the patient said mostly everything. Um, so what he never says when he talks about the welter of empirical material is how that's arrived at. And it's arrived at in conversation and dialogue so that one is already in a dialectical or relationship as Jung put it with one's own unconscious because we always are going inside to see if what we say is matching at all either what we feel or think or that strange dream we had that's dialectical where you have a relationship between the person and their own internal uh, process that they're trying to communicate then to another person, but also that that communication of that private conversation in which we are constantly questioning ourselves and being questioned by things that come up from within ourselves and try to figure out how to answer those questions and whether the questions themselves are even fairly put or derivatives of unfair attitudes toward us that our parents had or our culture or whatever. All that stuff that one has privately is taken to therapy and into a conversation with another living person who also has a point of view, an internal process. The analysts who listen call it, if they're Freudian, their reverie. Uh, and uh, but if you're a, a Jungian analyst and you actually move in a more conversational direction as I do, um, I'm constantly questioning whether what I'm saying really is going to come across to the other person as empathy or as addition or as intrusion and uh, uh, distraction or even critical judgment. So I'm always 
watching myself in relation to the other person. So we have a rather uh, animated conversation. There's at the same time what the uh, Jungian analyst from England, Michael Fordham called a rather mad affair. It really is a rather chaotic conversation that's animated by uh, two people doing their best to communicate with each other in what could be ultimately a useful way but finding out like every other conversation that it's complicated by all kinds of presuppositions, prejudices, uh, projections. Jung himself, as he was coming up, said that as he was getting into psychological work and meeting literally and reading everybody, but he also met everybody who was anybody in collective uh, psychotherapy a la uh, 1902 to 19... Uh, uh, 15, let's say, he just, he just read everybody and met everybody. And he said that in that entire time, there were only two people he had a conversation with that he could call an uncomplicated conversation. That is a conversation not made much more difficult by the presence of complexes on both sides that were affecting the conversation in a way that it really couldn't proceed naturally. And those two people were William James, whom he met in America twice. Um, the first time uh, William James said Jung made a very pleasing impression on him. The second time he didn't seem quite as taken with Jung. Uh, William James, who met Freud in 1909, the same year he met Jung, really didn't, didn't like Freud very much. He felt he was a man suffering from obsessional ideas, whereas by contrast, Jung made a very pleasing impression. I think he found Jung more intense when he returned to America, but by then, William James had serious uh, heart disease and was having angina and so forth, so we can't really say. But for Jung, William James was someone with whom he could have an uncomplicated uh, conversation. The other person was once very famous. He was a Geneva psychologist named uh, Theodore Flournois, who had written an amazing book called From India to the Planet Mars about archetypal material that appears when someone is in a dissociated state of consciousness. It's a classic in altered states of consciousness. And apparently Jung could have an uncomplicated conversation with him. So the man that is writing the preface to the uh, uh, Argentine edition of psychological types that came out in 1935. And of course he wrote it the year before in 1934, is a man who's already uh, uh, gone through uh, the break with Sigmund Freud. He's gone through a series of uh, encounters with other people who both do and don't understand his work. And so by now he's used also to working with uh, seriously neurotic or, or borderline or occasionally psychotic uh, people in uh, outpatient psychotherapy who uh, are presenting their complexes for analysis. So he comes out of a series of complicated conversations with people who are try struggling with their relation to the unconscious while he struggles with his relation to the unconscious and is also trying to create a theory of the unconscious that's opening and unfolding. So in that rather mad series of, of, of healing conversations, Jung has had literally hundreds of complicated conversations. And complicated conversations occur when different types of consciousness come up 
and meet other kinds of consciousness which both befriend and oppose them. And so there you really need some way of making sense of what are the regular territories within this mad conversation. And that gets into finally the creation that he achieved by the time he had published Psychological Types in 1921 um, of a flexible enough model to cover all the collisions of consciousness that can come up. It's almost like he discovered a series of elementary particles of consciousness and, and was also <laughs> the, uh, 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 what you would call it, the cyclotron at CERN uh, in Switzerland that was able to somehow watch their collisions and decide when it was time to add another particle to explain what the findings were uh, in the cyclotron that he called Jungian analysis. Uh, that's, that's, the, uh, uh, that's the basis of coming up with this welter of empirical material. It's the, it's, the, it's the numbers of issues that come up in a relatively well-intentioned conversation, in this case, therapeutic conversation. So to, to, to me, it's the working guide for the analytical psychotherapist. For someone else, it's the guide to why in the world does my husband or my wife or my partner uh, uh, ever... fail to understand me more of the time than less of the time. It's all about complicated conversations and what their regularities are. So it's always about a type of consciousness meeting another type of consciousness and perhaps from within being challenged by yet another consciousness in this endless uh, uh, labyrinth or maze of competing consciousnesses that Jung has concluded makes up how we relate to each other and how we assert ourselves and show other people our differences in the hope that they will eventually understand them. Imagine a theory of that. that if you can imagine that, you understand Jung's psychological types. So you've known um, some people who were analyzed by Jung. Um, did they say that he actually spoke in the analytic sessions about their material as being, did he actually sort it out according to psychological type with them in the uh, analytic process? The most direct example of that, that makes me feel that he did, is a letter he wrote to his first analytic patient who is now a very famous name because there have been so many books written about her and their conversation. And um, her name is um, Sabina Spielrein. And in, if I'm remembering correctly, 1917, I'm gonna move over here just to quickly pull out this particular letter that he wrote to her he actually wrote her uh, a letter and in that letter, he tells her something about her psychological type as if it was going to make a difference to um, how they could understand 
she and he, what had become a really difficult uh, transference, counter-transference situation. In fact, this is the case that made Jung feel that he had really understood for the first time the counter-transference to the patient's transference to the doctor. The patient's transference to the doctor is ultimately an extension of a very old idea, even from the time that the only depth psychology available was mesmer and hypnotism, which was called rapport. And it often is that expectation that the doctor will somehow be the savior, the healer, the father, or at times the mother, and uh, or perhaps some much more destructive figure that's brought by the patient. But the doctor also is part of the, con the conversation and counters that with his own, you could say, transference to the patient or his own resistance to the, what the patient is trying to project onto, onto him or her if the analyst happens to be a woman. So th that discovery of countertransference and what can happen between two people came up in his discussions after their therapy had basically ended in a, in a rather difficult stalemate and she had gone on away from him eventually to become um, uh, an important uh, Freudian analyst. And in fact, the first Freudian psychoanalyst in Russia later in her life. But this case, which was the case that he had originally um, um, uh, taken to uh, taken to 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 Freud to discuss uh, in 1907 became the basis of an of a series of communications with Spielrein herself long after the the therapy itself had been terminated, and so. Um, Jung wrote her a letter in um, 1917. So that's I, three years that was, before the psychological text was written. That was exactly. But by the time that he'd figured out all four functions of consciousness, because it took him a while to get from two functions, thinking and feeling, to four, thinking, feeling, sensation, and intuition. So he writes to her, and remember, this is a woman he saw as a regressed psychotic person of the Burkholzli, who thanks to his treatment and her own enormous energies for recovery, was able to go to medical school, graduate, uh, and was now a doctor. So he addresses her in, in 1917. Uh, this would be December 18th of uh, 1917. Dear doctor, he says, you have grasped the elements of type theory except for the problem of feeling. You define feelings one-sidedly and arbitrarily as something conscious. If there are unconscious thoughts, there are also unconscious feelings, so to speak. The feelings of the introvert are infantile, archaic, symbolic, 
because they are mainly of an unconscious nature. The extrovert's own thoughts are similar. You are an intuitive extrovert type. Your conception of the unconscious seems arbitrary to me. It is not clear how you can practically distinguish between a side conscious, a pre-conscious, a subconscious, and an unconscious. Where do dreams come from? Freud recognizes the psychology of the ego in the same way as Adler recognizes sexuality. But that is all. Adler is not to be ranked alongside Freud, otherwise you do violence to both. With friendly greetings, yours sincerely, Dr. Jung. Well, now, the interesting thing is how much he's talking type with her, to answer your question. Of course, it also shows the incredible one-sidedness that he was still holding on to, because he was still, despite having added in extrovert, uh, intuitive, and that may explain why he and Spielrein themselves had such an oppositional relationship because at one point in, in the treatment, she actually stabbed him in his, in his, his wrist when he was still at the Bricolse. He was very shocked by it, but she had a violent, uh, angry resistance to, to, to Jung as well as a tremendous uh, romantic uh, attraction to him and possibly he to her as well, because he certainly uh, at the very least held her hand and they could talk what she called poetry together. How far that poetry went, we'll never really know. And, it, and the usual uh, assumption is they must have had an affair. The historians that have looked deeply into that said they didn't have an affair, but that he certainly was allowing her to, uh, to believe that they had some kind of, uh, of, of romantic connection. And um, she eventually um, uh, raised this issue and it became a bit of a scandal in, in, in Zurich. Uh, and it was a huge issue between them. But there was obviously uh, what I would now call an opposition between his dominant, as I see it, introverted intuition and her dominant extroverted intuition. And it's my opinion that these are situations that are often handled because there's such an intense opposition between the introverted and the extroverted aspect of a function, in this case, the two intuitive functions, that people often, when they find that they're in opposition, mistakenly try to bridge the opposition uh, by falling in love or sexualizing the relationship in some way or actually having an affair as if that were going to bring them together. And what usually happens, especially when it happens in therapy, is that not only does it bring them together, it simply brings them to a court of law later on where someone is, or, or to an ethics committee where someone is basically uh, saying, and quite correctly, that the doctor should have known better than to allow that way of solving their, their, their opposition. What's not usually recognized is that what's being tried to solve is an opposition. So I'm putting words into people's mouth they often don't have. They see it as simply an abuse of power and not see the, the tragedy of people trying to connect when they're essentially different. Unfortunately, Jung wasn't there in his models. All he had was that there were still basically two types, the extrovert who was uh, going to be more likely uh, uh, feeling and, and the introvert who is more likely uh, to, be, to be thinking. 
So he's assuming that she has the feelings of the introvert that are mainly of an unconscious nature, or he does. He's the introvert in that case. Sorry, I shouldn't have said he, but she, but it's he. The feelings of the introvert are infantile, archaic, symbolic, because they're mainly of an unconscious nature. He's talking about his own feelings there. The extrovert's own thoughts are similar. He's saying, look, my feelings are infantile, archaic, and symbolic, and your thoughts are similar because you are an intuitive extrovert type. So he's saying, watch out for the way you think, just like I have to watch out for the way I feel. That was part of his way of accepting responsibility for something she stirred up in him that made him behave in an infantile, archaic, or symbolic way. But he's also warning her that she should not trust her thinking as much. Now, that is usually interpreted uh, by people who've studied this as sexism on Jung's part, that he's saying basically that um, there's something wrong with her thinking, and, and they think that that's the typical man telling the woman that there's something wrong with her thinking. I think Jung was sincerely trying to, to understand something that happened between them as the fact that each had had their unconscious side stirred. And unfortunately, since all he had was extrovert equals feeling and, and introvert equals thinking, he would give himself infantile feeling and he would give the extroverted Spielrein uh, inferior thinking. And it comes across as very patriarchal and depreciative uh, by today's uh, standards. If you open up the type model as the eight function model does, and we're able to do that because Jung was finally able, by the time he finished uh, writing psychological types and just a similar paper that he wrote to the preface in the 19, in, in 1935, he talks about eight function types. And so there we have his own statement for the first time of an eight function model. And when you have that in mind, then you can say that, of course, some part of him was going to try to relate to her as an introvert would, and some part of her was going to try to relate to him as an extrovert would, and they would collide. And perhaps there was an additional collision that evoked immature introverted aspects of his own feeling and on her side, perhaps, immature, extroverted aspects of her own thinking. I wouldn't say it at all the way Jung said it in 1917. And by the time you finish uh, analyzing the two of them from the standpoint of an eight-function model and imagine that perhaps here was Jung, um, an introverted intuitive with extroverted thinking, and perhaps um, uh, there is 
Sabina Spilrein, an extroverted, intuitive, <laughs> with perhaps uh, uh, introverted feeling, then perhaps you can read that letter in which he conflates extroversion and feeling and introversion and thinking and say that, well, if you look at our inner children, our third functions, you have a tendency to get a little inflated by your an omnipotent around your extroverted thinking ideas, just as I have a tendency to become stubborn and infantile and regressed and symbolic and archaic when I use my introverted feeling. And there he could see very beautifully a transference, counter-transference defined by what I would call the Puella side of her and the Puer side of him. In other words, the third function in Jung and the third function in her, both of which were eternal, stubborn, difficult, inflated children. And they got into quite a battle with each other uh, in the name of trying to do first uh, hospital psychiatry and then later uh, outpatient uh, psychoanalysis. And they ended up uh, as if falling in love. And I think because it was very much a puer puella relationship, I would be surprised if it was even physically consummated but it certainly was a perplexing experience for him. All we can say about his 1917 letter is that it's probably taken a hundred years to be able to decipher it, to see what he's talking about. But there is the evidence that he did bring the type of subject into a way of analyzing the therapeutic interaction. Just the question you asked. So it's, it's really remarkable that, uh, I mean, it's a fascinating example and it's interesting that it comes even before the publication of the book. And it, it, I mean, the fact that this was the example that came to your mind does certainly suggest that if Jung did use the type model to sort out the welter of material, as he suggests, that he mostly kept it to himself. Right, and perhaps should have because his, uh, his model wasn't evolved enough to do it well. People who try to use Jung's typology too quickly, they either use extrovert, introvert, and make everything that the basis of everything, or they seize onto one or two functions like thinking and feeling or intuition and sensation, if, if that's. Unless you use it all, it's a complex model of complexity itself. And so if you don't accept it as a model that has to um, embrace a series of complexes all associated with each other in the complexity we call the personal self of a client and all that is revealed in therapy to the personal self of a therapist whose own complexity engages with the complexity of the other. And unless you have a model that can survey that complexity, you never get to what's going on. Moreover, he hadn't even invented the word archetype or selected the word archetype because it was an old word that he appropriated until 1919. He, he did have an idea of primordial images. So all he could talk about was words like archaic and infantile and symbolic. 
he hadn't found the word archetypal, so he hadn't even added in what I came to see was obviously present, a sense of the archetypes involved. I mean, it's very different when you can see um, Sabina and Jung playing together like uh, children in the secret garden of, of, of the newborn field of psychoanalysis than when you try to see him as supposedly mature, uh, responsible doctor uh, 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 C.G. Jung and supposedly uh, completely uh, uh, immature and vulnerable Sabina Spielrein. Actually, they were both very powerful, complicated people with uh, a lot of genius on both sides, uh, thinking they had found each other and discovering that they really uh, had to part their ways. I mean, it, it, the eight function model opens up life the way a novelist does, whereas all the other models sort of assume that people have egos that know what they're doing, when in fact, there's so much to ourselves that while not exactly unconscious because it's consciousness is operating so uh, spontaneously and out of uh, our control that we only find out later that it did, hadn't made any sense at all. And it was a consciousness. So I have more questions about Jung's relation to the types, but for a minute, I want to go forward in time and ask um, among the more or less first generation or the of analysts that you that you knew or just analysts that are that were older than you as you were in training and so forth um did they um use the type theory in the way that Jung envisioned sorting out the jumble of uh psychological materials according to the types no unfortunately they 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 ended up with rigid uh formulations of themselves. Um, I would, I mean, I remember one of the first analysts who really was a friend of mine. Um, um, I think I can say his name here, Tom Kirsch, who was very sensitive and smart and loved psychological types. And as a book, it was his favorite of the Jungian books. And uh, he was the one who actually told me uh, back in 1966 that I was an intuitive type. He was the first person to name that. And it was so helpful to me as I was beginning to read Jung. We, we met when I was a, an intern in San Francisco and he was doing uh, uh, his uh, basically alternative to military service in the public health service. Uh, as a, as a psychiatric consultant, he was three years older than me. And so we, we met and became friends, lifelong friends. And um, in that early time, and uh, sometimes he would say things to me like, um, well, I think, and then he'd say, well, I can't think because I'm a feeling type. Well, that, Tom was actually, and extroverted intuitive with introverted feeling, but he had somehow been um, uh, pigeonholed in his analysis as an introverted feeling type. And certainly Tom had a great deal of introverted feeling, but it was his auxiliary function. So people walked around be hearing that they were either introverts or extroverts and because introverts, they were this. And, and so there was that same old model that it's either feeling or thinking and feeling is could be tied up with introversion and 
thinking could be tied up with extroversion. And, but it was a bit of a massive confuser. Um, Tom was smart enough to, to see the types very well, but there he was with that same language. And it was sometime before he finally was able to say to the world that it was, he, was really an, it, he was really an extrovert. And he would have said an extroverted intuitive with uh, introverted feeling. But some people wouldn't even give him credit for his intuition, which was superb. Uh, and, and instead, uh, they would say, well, he's, he's a sensation type, because for them, the gold standard for intuition would be introverted intuition. And they, he didn't do that. He did extroverted intuition. And, and I heard people speak of him as if, in a way that didn't understand him. And, and so one of the reasons I got so interested in the type model and improving it is that I really appreciated Tom's telling me that I was an, an, an intuitive type. And it was terribly important to me to sort out what that meant and what kind of intuition it was. And then later, it helped me, I think, to, to befriend what he was like in a community that had defined intuition too narrowly as, as introverted intuition. And the growth of the field of Jungian analysis itself owes a great deal to Tom Kirsch, precisely because he was extroverted intuitive and didn't treat it as, as something that could only be done by introverts in an introverted way, and therefore really wouldn't be possible to uh, uh, come to the world at large because that would require some, some uh, extroverted sense of its possibilities uh, in training programs all over the world. Tom had a lot to do with what were called the developing groups of the uh, international organization that became the basis of institutes and training programs in parts of the world that had been more or less written off. So, and were interested in becoming Jungian without that extroverted intuition. But imagine coming, he had both parents were Jungian analysts and he had various Jungian analyst uh, supervisors and teachers, but with all of them that encouragement to think more of his introverted side and, and he had to find his own way to realize his extroverted side because it was somehow not defined as something an intuitive could have. So there we have the need again for eight functions of consciousness. Uh, of course, by the time Marie-Louise von Franz published her lectures or part of the lectures on Jung's typology in 1971, she was showing students in Zurich the very same thing, that you, to make sense of Jung, you need eight function model. She took the eight function type seriously. And that book really opened the door uh, for people like myself to capitalize upon. That's, however, a good number of years uh, five years after I first had that conversation about my own type with Tom and our friendship had begun. And I could was participant in even this very extroverted intuitive man's struggle to make his own extroverted uh, point of view um, heard and seen and valued as, as it was entirely possible to do. As, Andrew Samuels, after he died, said that Jungian analysis today 
would be impossible to conceive without what Tom had, had opened up, that something he had more to do with the actual identity of a Jungian analyst in the world than anyone else. Now that that's a big statement, but it's 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 a statement that compensates tremendously and shows how far our field has come since those early days where we thought so rigidly and therapists latched on to the introversion or the extroversion of one side of the client, whether it was their auxiliary function or their dominant function, and think that was the whole thing and turn the person into mostly that. That's not watching the, the welter of empirical material. That's selectively interpreting people. So I'm gonna go back for a minute to Jung, although I wanna come forward to that later history in a minute too, but in a, in a lecture in 1923 on types, Jung described the undeveloped functions of the psyche as all being opposite in attitude to the superior function, all of them. So what did he do with that concept that the undeveloped part was opposite in attitude? I mean, where did that go? Well, there are two ways to look at that. Jung talked about the inferior function as carrying the entire relation to the unconscious. Uh, and unfortunately, that meant for some people, not quite what you just finished saying, but rather that if your dominant function was extroverted, so too would your auxiliary function be extroverted and even your third function be extroverted. So your only introverted function was the inferior function. And yet that at the same time, they would use this confusing term about all the undeveloped parts of yourself. And so what's smuggled into there are all what, what are hardly named as such, but all the shadow functions, which as I call them today, which are the other functions with the other attitudes. So what they probably meant was, to taking a person like me, that if they knew I was extroverted and they were willing to agree with Tom that I was an extroverted intuitive, then poor John Beebe would have extroverted intuition. And yes, he has thinking, but it has to be extroverted thinking. And he does have extroverted feeling. Uh, we can see that occasionally. He, that is a sweet childlike idealistic part of him. But poor John Beebe is so clueless about introversion and no wonder he's depressed and needs analysis because, and that's his introverted sensation and we'll let him discover that for himself as I did. But then you see, my introverted sensation is supposed to give me also my introverted feeling <laughs> and my uh, introverted thinking and um, my introverted intuition. So now I, that's where those undeveloped functions come. Well, of course, that isn't at all what's really going on. Anybody who'd really listened to me and watched me would have noticed that I don't use extroverted thinking. Uh, I use introverted thinking. So and that was my auxiliary function, but they didn't have this idea. It took Isabel Briggs Myers to point this out, that our auxiliary function is really, as Jung says, in one place, different in every respect from the dominant function. All Jung meant with that rather inflated sentence that's different in every respect 
is that it was different in one respect and that if the first function was what he called a rational function, the auxiliary would be an irrational function. And since irrational functions are so different from rational functions, he added in that in every respect. Fortunately, Isabel Briggs Myers and uh, her mother, Catherine Briggs, took him at his word and did what the great literary critic Harold Bloom calls a creative misreading of a badly written sentence <laughs> and got it to mean what it should have meant all along was that it really is different in every respect, meaning that if the first function is extroverted, the second will be uh, introverted, all right. But if the first function is rational, the second function will be irrational. And that's where you get that John Beebe, who have dominant extroverted intuition, will have an auxiliary function. That's an irrational extroverted function, will have an auxiliary uh, introverted rational function, introverted thinking. Suddenly that makes sense and we don't have to turn to my inferior function to get all of my introversion because my introversion's at hand in my first two. And my MBTI profile, which came out in my first time I took it in 1968 as ENTP, and uh, when I took it again in 1980, again ENTP, and the Gray Wheelwright's test, which I took, the uh, Jungian type survey made by two Jungian analysts, uh, 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 Jane and Joe Wheelwright, and uh, a Jungian psychiatrist, Harold Gray, uh, I came out as, as uh, an extrovert Wait, and with leading introversion and leading and also uh, thinking. Is his name Horace Gray? Or, did I say Horace Gray? What Gray did I say? Harold, I think it's Horace Gray. Horace Gray. Yeah. Uh, Gray. But Harold so, Gray is, I think Harold Gray did Orphan Annie. So, <laughs> so leading in a Freudian way to that, I felt like Orphan Annie many, many times. And I felt that, that Jung was Daddy Warbucks, but I, you could only get to it once in a while. I felt like the Orphan Annie of psychological type. I was going around trying to, as a, as a child without good parents, trying to find, and I had this millionaire father that showed up occasionally named C.G. Jung, and I could look in his writings and find out what was really going on. But all of that was what was informing me as I tried to make sense of the type. So that's a, that we can trace that association down. But for historical record, his name was Horace Gray. So you're, you're, you've just said, uh, perhaps casually, um, that you, you, it seems like you're implying that um, Isabel Myers and her mother uh, rather innocently took Jung at his word that the auxiliary was different in every respect from the superior function. But I've always thought that they had observed that the auxiliary was of the opposite attitude from the superior function, and they fastened on that sentence as a way to support what they had observed. We'll never know, will we? I, I, since you have tremendously good introverted sensation, Adam, I think you probably have some God-given ability to tell what's real and what's not real. And I think you found my version a little idealistic. And I think you found yours a little more the way people are. What I do feel about Isabel and her mother is that 
where they did take Jung at his word, whether or not they ever saw, and they probably, when they were really putting the Invitia together, didn't see the preface to the Argentine edition, because the Psychological Types book was published rather late, 1970, and so they had pretty much formed their theory long before, and that, I don't think that preface to the Argentine edition was available until that was in translation, until that was published. They probably, though, were noticing the welter of empirical material. They were looking closely at how people operated, and they, they quickly saw the way extroversion and introversion particularly are um, available to all of us. And I, think they, and I think the rigidity with which the original theory wouldn't allow that uh, in the same way or relegated one to the unconscious of the other, if they did nothing else, and perhaps because they weren't analysts and so much in love with the idea of the unconscious is one thing and the conscious is another thing, uh, which was the, the very devil of an idea for Freud and even for Jung all the way through the period that he was a Freudian and was that last Freudian book he published that actually led to the break with Freud, Transformations and Symbols of Libido, he was still saying that uh, the conscious and the unconscious were somehow separate and uh, rationality is the uh, province of the conscious and irrationality of the unconscious. And that also meant for him that if you did say that someone was extroverted, you had to say that, that their unconscious was introverted and you had that rigid separation. They were by just being American empiricists and pragmatists were looking at people as they are and anybody who's been around Americans any length of time can easily see the extroverted and the introverted in oscillation in just about everybody. And I, so, so I think that they were really looking at the welter of empirical material that, you, that people present in everyday life. And so they were, they were doing the Jungian thing in the world where he was trying to do it in the consulting room and actually hobbled a little by the need to have a theory. If only he had been a little more atheoretical, he could have gotten to that sooner. Yes. In, in Gifts Differing, Isabel Briggs Myers find, openly finds fault with Jung for not showing more interest in the potential of the auxiliary to bring balance to the psyche uh, in that way. And I have, I have wondered why Jung didn't observe it. And I guess what you've just said could be the answer. Well, to which we can add John Beebe. <laughs> and here I'll give myself a little credit for having figured out a few things that only work if you realize that the various so-called positions of consciousness really mean something, just as they do in an atom, the positions of electrons and particles seem to mean something and the direction of their spin. When I came to realize that I was extroverted in my dominant function and introverted in my second function. As you all know, I, who've read my work, that I take Wayne Detloff uh, as the person who pointed that out to me sometime 
around 1972 or 73, and it really changed my 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 uh, life. He he introduced me to that theoretical model because I was struggling as a candidate at the Jung Institute for analytic certification. We call it it's like being a PhD candidate. You you spend years in training and you call yourself a candidate toward becoming one day an analyst. And he was one of the people who met with me annually to review my progress. And I was really having trouble deciding whether I was an extrovert or an introvert. And then he explained that it wasn't in the Jungian uh, analytic group at that time. He said, you're not gonna hear it around here, but there is another school of thought that will tell you that if the first function is extroverted, the second is introverted. And that's how I first learned about Isabel Briggs Myers as a theorist, as opposed to just the name of it on the, on the test, uh, the, the, the indicator, I should say. But uh, when, when I was struggling with that, that opened up things for me. And it became clear that I was extroverted intuitive, but that my thinking was introverted. But it still didn't answer a question It only took me the longest time and I don't know exactly when it dawned on me. I don't think I can tell you the moment at which it dawned on me, perhaps because of dreams I was having in which I was seeing a father and a son and the father was a thinking type and the son was a feeling type that I began to think about the, the auxiliary functions and gradually realized that when I used introverted thinking, I was using it almost exclusively to father other people in my practice, to be a father to my patients, uh, toward my mother who often seemed to need uh, uh, thinking support or so I thought I would try to be the father she hadn't had and, and that was, she'd had an absent father. It didn't work that well, but I tried to compensate for her difficulty with thinking by providing thinking. And certainly I did that with my patients and eventually as a teacher, helping people to clarify thinking as I try to do about types among other things as I am doing even in this moment. When I'm in that mode of myself, I'm taking care of others. When I, when I heard about auxiliary function from both Jung and, and, and eventually Isabel Briggs Myers in the book, Gift Differing, I kept, I kept thinking of it as an auxiliary ego for me, or it was like if I had a, I was a plane and one motor conked out, there'd still be the other motor. So I could always rely, though my dominant was gonna be the one I liked to use and preferred to use, I could use my auxiliary to get around. Trouble is, well, you know me pretty well. <laughs> I do a great job of thinking for other people. I can hardly think for myself at all. My introverted thinking does not take care of me. It's very hard for me to, I mean, I've worked on it and you can tell I've worked on it to define myself as well as I can with the types, but it took me forever to think for myself in a variety of ways. And I'm even just to define what I should be doing and what I should be doing with my myself. Most of it was just being extroverted intuition and uh, for myself and using introverted thinking to take care of other people. What I learned was that the archetype associated and driving that function into being, you know, in my own childhood where I had to be so much uh, the parent to a rather infantile divorced mother, uh, 
who was often felt helpless and dissolving in tears, I had to kind of help her think. So in a very early age, I developed that caretaking function as many therapists do in their own families. They become the family therapist so, that, so much so that even when I was 15 in a in boarding school and the way I took care of other people, uh, people were already saying, yeah, I would be a good psychiatrist someday because and people, that I was noted for that side of myself. Um, I had to learn that the archetype that was driving my introverted thinking into the place that it got to, uh, which is, was all driven by an archetype of a caretaker. It, I call it the father or the parent, or it could be the mentor, it could be the a teacher, but that I was, it was there to foster other people's thinking with, with with my clarity, lending my clarity, that was not there for me, it was there for them. And so to get it, the idea that, uh, so when we go to Jung and, and why it was hard for him to realize that the auxiliary function be that was, Jung was not a particularly good father, in my opinion. Uh, when I did the preface to the book I put together of selections from Jung's writings, Aspects of the Masculine, um, my colleague Arthur Coleman, who'd written about the uh, archetype of the father, liked my preface very much, but wondered why I didn't talk about Jung in terms of talk about the father, particularly, even to talk, he said, you could have talked about the absence of that. And it's amazing how that doesn't exactly come up in Jung's writings or in himself as something particularly strong. Uh, as you know, I've talked to his own son, Franz Jung, who said that his father was busy most of the time. He was wonderful on vacations or something like that. But mostly when people needed advice in that family, Emma Jung ran the family, and, and if they needed really good advice, it was it was her mother that gave the advice to the to the to the children. Jung himself was not that kind of father. Now Jung, as a world teacher, distinguished himself in many lectures that he gave, and as a lecturer, a particularly a live lecturer in his English seminars, and you can get a taste of this in the wonderful five lectures he wrote in 1935 and delivered at the Tavistock Clinic in, in London, where there you can feel Jung explaining his theories with extroverted thinking in the most wonderful way. And he has a, and there you can feel that this man could father thinking in, 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 the, to the, in the analytic uh, field in a wonderful way. But at a personal level, I, I think he was kind of a dud as a father. So I think it, it gets back to personal issues. His own father was the weaker member of the household and died young. And Jung became a father in a world intellectual, a world doctor sense, um, but in a personal level. So I think Jung probably did not fully know what to do with his extroversion in his own family. And so in that way, perhaps he didn't realize 
at that level, the caretaking power of his own extroverted thinking in a personal way as a collective figure, however, he puts out this amazing body of work. Um, and that is the way he, he fathers the world. But I'm not sure he would have seen that as, as personal. I think he probably would have seen that as a, almost a daimon in himself that had to be satisfied. But I think the answer is that there is his father, but I doubt he saw it and that made it hard for him to see that it would apply to many, many people that they use the auxiliary function to take care of others. I just think that eluded him. That, that's my view of it, even though he was using it to take care of all of us in a collective way. Well, I wonder if there could have been, if there could be any cultural aspect to this too, uh, comparing 1920 to 2020 or 2021. Uh, I wonder whether there could be, could, could it be that in contemporary culture, there's a different relation to caretaking and its role in our life than there was in 1920? Well, that's a very interesting question as to whether in a way we have been given permission to take care of each other. I wonder whether that would have been seen as intrusive to try to take care of each other. Like, um, Young's own father had a wife who was somewhat psychotic, I think, and that was Jung's mother. And she certainly had a very serious depression that required a psychiatric or medical hospitalization, but it was for a psychiatric illness uh, when Jung was quite small. So we're talking about someone having to spend time in a sanitarium uh, for almost, it sounded like, maybe I don't know the dates exactly, but it sounded like a long time. And in those days, such, medical hospital treatments for depression lasted a long time. My own mother was in a psychiatric hospital for an entire year when I was a little, pretty much the same age as young. And uh, I don't, today it would be a two week hospitalization. We don't do that in psychiatry anymore for good reason, because we didn't wanna, don't wanna encourage that kind of regression. But in those days, they didn't know what to do and they certainly didn't have antidepressants and we don't know exactly what what the condition was, but it was something. But I wonder if even with that, Paul Achilles Young, his Young's father would have felt entitled to take care of his, of his wife because it wasn't sort of the sort of thing adults did for each other exactly. They didn't do that. Whereas obviously in America, all kinds of families where there's someone who's psychologically uh, challenged there's often someone else in the family who's quite willing to function as a caretaker and visit and offer all kinds of things. So I do think there is a cultural shift in terms of what you feel permitted to do once people are past the point of childhood. I think most feel, of us feel more permitted. Well, not only permitted, but expected. I mean, um, we're taught today, you know, in the, contem in the contemporary culture that if we're somewhere and we hear 
someone, you know, saying something that's racist or sexist that we should intervene. Um, you know, or if something happens to someone in your family, let's say there's a mental illness in your family, you're, you know, you're asked, well, what did you do about it? I, I, I think there's just much more of an expectation, perhaps, I'm just guessing, I'm not a historian, but uh, I'm guessing that maybe part of the reason that Jung and the early generation of, of Jungian analysts were so incurious about the auxiliary function and, and rather unobservant about its, about its nature with respect to introversion and extroversion is maybe it just wasn't as enabled as it is today. Yes. And in fact, the entire caretaking being taken care of relationship that could be called father to child, like father function to puer or puella function in another person. So in other words, I can say that my own third function of extroverted feeling needs caretaking from others and can get it in America today. Um, and people are wonderful at taking care of me. Sometimes when I lecture, I show my child and the audience takes care of my child as I lecture. And it's kind of a kind of a wonderful interchange where I'm not only just teaching them, which could become insufferable, but they're also holding me and making me feel like going on teaching. And so that I get that going and I like the, the balance of that. But I think that's in America today. When it, in Freud's time and Jung's time, parent-child relationships were relegated to the unconscious. In Freud, it becomes the Oedipus complex. And in Jung, it becomes the mother complex and the father complex. But again, complexes are seen as unconscious things rather than, as I'm saying, yes, it's a complex, but it's a healthy complex. Jung does say complexes can be organs of normal growth, but he doesn't really show us how to take that idea. So we're left with the idea that complex is a pathological term. Uh, and in fact, complex, if you don't want complex to be only a pathological term, you wanna get into the fact that there's a mother archetype and a father archetype in all of us, and it's very near and it's supportive of consciousness and caretaking in others, it's not something that's only discovered in the darkness of the analytic consulting room uh, or the relative darkness and gradually made conscious that you, it, it's not just something in your unconscious that there's already a natural mother and a natural uh, father and it's as near to hand as, as, as uh, your right hand, it's if you're right-handed or your left hand if you're left-handed, it's your auxiliary function. Well, and you've just mentioned the the third function too, the the that you've associated with the inner child or the inner adolescent. Um, wasn't it around 1980 that there got to be a great interest in the MBTI movement about whether the third function's attitude was uh, opposite or the same to the auxiliary function? And what brought that? Uh, now we will get a Herald, Harold Grant and I seem to be published in the same year or so. Uh, and I certainly was lecturing that it's a series of checks and balances. In fact, in other words, alternation of attitudes. And I often 
credit uh, my close friend, uh, the American uh, writer of novels and especially short stories, Nancy Hale, who happened to be the first person I ever met who had had a Jungian analysis with, and it was with Beatrice Hinkle, who was the first Jungian analyst in America and the first person to write a book. Uh, the book was called The Recreating of the Individual in which she came up two years after Jung's Psychological Types was uh, published with her own version of uh, a psychological type theory. So she had a few terms that are different uh, from um, uh, the standard Jungian uh, way. She, she spoke of an emotional introvert and a subjective extrovert. I still remember Nancy Hale meeting me at, at the between the ages of 18 and 21, she said to me, and I was trying to figure out if I was an extrovert or an introvert even then, and uh, she said, uh, oh, well, you're a subjective extrovert with lots of introspection. And that was her uh, version of uh, Beatrice Hinkle. And so Nancy Hale and I had a, had a dialogue. She was fascinated that I chose to be a, a, a uh, a psychiatrist because she had been helped by her time in psychotherapy, which had relieved a writer's block and resulted in her being able to uh, be a very prolific writer, holding the world's record for the number of stories sold to the New Yorker in one year, which was 12. And that was after her analysis with Beatrice Hinkle for writer's block. Pretty good result. But um, she, uh, uh, and I would have conversations as I was learning about when I talked to Wayne Detloff and was learning the alternation of the types. And she had come from the Hale name, it was the same name because she was a direct descendant of the Nathan Hale who said, that I, I regret that I only have one life uh, to give for my country. And also the Edward Everett Hale who wrote The Man Without a Country who was a Unitarian minister who was actually her grandfather. Uh, but uh, coming from that kind of New England family, she had a kind of New England way and a kind of a very American political way of saying it. As soon as I explained to her that I had figured out that the dominant function was extroverted and the, and the second function was introverted, that that's what I got from Wayne Dedlock, and that it went on that way all the way through, that the third function would then be introverted again, that's again only in me. I'm just giving you that. It would be the other way of my starting point had been extra, had been introvert. But if if the first is one attitude, the second's the other attitude, then it shifts again on the third attitude being introversion or extroversion, and finally the inferior. And she immediately said, "Oh, it's like a system of checks and balances." And of course, she was speaking Constitution of the United States, and she was speaking out of her ancestry of New England. And uh, so. But why did that come up in the early 1980s and not, you know, sooner or later? Well, that conversation between her and me took place around 1974. Okay. And I said it in lectures, but I came in my first published article on types in 1983. Now, I don't know, Errol Grant, I think, 
do you remember the title of his book? It's 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 got a wonderful the word archetype and from in it. it uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very nice book. Uh, uh, it comes from a theological tradition. His book was published in either 82 or 83. So we were close and there were tapes already with me saying this, but why did it come up sometime between 1972 and 1982? Why then? and not earlier. That's a really interesting. Well, I guess what I'm getting at that happened in America was the was was Nixon as the bad father in Watergate, the failure of the Nixon presidency and his resignation, the first time that the questioning of the father as portrayed in American politics by presidents that were no longer to be trusted, somehow we stopped letting the collective hold the father and for that matter, the mother position. Women began to question at the same time whether they should be always, that the gold standard would be for them to be in the mother role. What that did is that it deconstructed father and mother as stable fixtures out there in society. And that meant that each and every one of us had to struggle to be the right kind of father and the right kind of mother so that we had to, for the first time, all figure out how to use our auxiliary functions. Up until then, as late as Eisenhower, you sort of, you just, you didn't necessarily always agree with your government, but you trusted it. They were the people that were running things and you didn't look behind the pedestals. After, after about 1968, that's all you did was look behind the pedestals. The more you look behind the pedestals, there were so many things that were not good fathers and good mothers, and even the idea of being a father and being a mother were questioned as very rigid patriarchal or sexist ideas or just, just rigid. And we were all suddenly given the opportunity and, the, and also the expectation that we had to actually define those roles for ourselves and see if they still fit us. None of that was going on until the revolutionary uh, thinking of the 1960s in this in this country. I, I think it was comparable to the revolution of 1848, perhaps in Europe, which shook up a lot of ideas people had in earlier, the Protestant Reformation, which shook up ideas about authority. I think we had that kind of revolution. And suddenly, mother and father were not things that we could assume were taken care of by anyone. So we all had to figure out what they were for ourselves. Probably that forced us to develop uh, uh, a caretaking attitude. And we're still struggling with it because our job now is to take care of the earth uh, or, we'll, or we will become an extinct species and a dried up planet like Mars. In other words, that's what we're, that's what we're suddenly with that it's up to us to figure out how to be caretakers. I think all that has driven the archetypes that were once projected onto the collective 
figures that we now no longer trust uh, and made it individual responsibility. I think you're talking about a tremendous social shift that took place after Eisenhower. So if you, if someone had come up with the eight function, eight archetype model, these are 1950s, um, are you saying that it, it would have been, no, people wouldn't have been interested in it or it wouldn't have gotten, wouldn't have caught on, it wouldn't have gotten attention or? Well, I think they would have said, they would have seen me as projecting my Oedipal dynamics onto, onto a psychological theory. And they would have, they, you see, back, the way, the way psychoanalysis took over in American thought is, is, is still a story to be told. Uh, the, the degree of, that it became the way people thought I mean, my mother knew a great, a great deal about psychoanalysis. In fact, she was saying in the 1950s, psychoanalysis was her religion. She was a rather original thinker herself. She dropped out of school at the age of 15, but she was a voracious reader. And uh, she dropped out because she had a social phobia and she was ridiculed in the presentation. So she went to the library instead every day. And it's really quite a touching story, but... Um, The, the psychoanalytic view was that there was already embedded in us um, almost like the Egyptian pantheon, uh, where the, which lasted for 2,000 years uh, in that culture, um, a, series, a series of statues that we had to deal with, and they would be mother and father and baby, and, and that became the first archetype that attracted Jung, that Jung talked about, that Freud talked about, Oedipus and, and archetype and all that excited him. He didn't use the word archetype, but it just hit Jung's imagination. He got disappointed when he discovered that that was going to be the only one. That was, and so he needed to get away so he could have and find many more archetypal models. But still, there's that idea that there's a kind of presetness. So I think it was even out of Switzerland in 1939, I think the book, uh, The Ego and the Mechanisms of Adaptation by Heinz Hartmann became the uh, basis of what became known as ego psychology in psychoanalysis. And it became the dominant school of thought when I was uh, coming up and getting my training as a medical doctor. And, and it was still very much in place when I started my psychiatric residency uh, in uh, 1968 at Stanford, but that was beginning to yield to other, other, uh, other vectors, including to my great pleasure and to everybody else's dismay, Jungian psychology came back. Everybody, no one believed that was gonna be what it became. But in that period um, of ego psychology, the, Heinz Hartmann postulated for psychoanalysis that you had to accept that people's struggles with authority, people's struggles with sexualities, people's struggles with the world all took place against a background that in that book, The Ego and the Mechanisms of Adaptation, 
was called the average expectable environment. So that you, it, it, so that's why it was possible for 1950 psychoanalysts to assume that everybody's family was really Ozzy and Harriet, uh, uh, the television program, that, that was the average expectable environment. And you had to judge all the fantasies people had and the difficulties they had with adaptation against that average expectable environment. The trouble is that Heinz Hartmann's book came out in 1939. I was born in 1939. And my, I've never seen that average expectable environment. I certainly didn't grow up in that kind of family. And I haven't seen anyone else who really did either. Uh, and so that average expectable environment is a convenient fantasy like the Egyptian pantheon, but real lives are lived in a very different way. And so for my generation, we've had to have the psychology of let's not assume that the consciousness out there and the images of it are all where it's at. Rather, let's find out empirically through the welter of our own experience, how it sorts out, what's carrying it, and who we are. And we have to take up each of these cultural roles and define and redefine them for ourselves until we get a life that works, that makes sense of our own complexity. That's been my, that's, that's a postmodern, uh, deconstruction and and we're now in a kind of uh, I'm part of a, what could be called a reconstruction uh, you could call my 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 way of using psychology is I've been through deconstruction and now I'm doing a kind of reconstruction but on an individual basis to show what happens when you take these elements and how do they sort out for for each of us in an environment we can't predict that's never average, that's never expectable, and which consciousness is constantly required simply to survive. That's where we are now. We've been um, mostly talking about the, um, the egocentric part of the psyche uh, in, in the questions that, that I've asked. Um, but I want to I want to get to the the deeper unconscious to the to the shadow part of your model. Um, I was born in the 1950s, as you know, and I remember when the unconscious was widely considered to be a realm of dread, a location for awful, frightening, shameful stuff that's better left undisturbed. It seemed like it was impossible for the people my parents knew to speak about the unconscious without grimacing. And I, I just wonder what changes have you noticed uh, in, in the culture over your lifetime about attitudes toward the unconscious? Because that's certainly not the contemporary Jungian attitude toward the unconscious. I even have a, a paper which keeps being, uh, it seems to be the paper of mine that people latch on to most often the different online sites uh, academia.edu and researchgate and my paper attitudes toward the unconscious which i published uh, 
sometime in, in the uh, 1990s, late 1990s in the Journal of Analytical Psychology um, has seemed to be something that comes up uh, as, as an article people find. And I believe the word attitude is critical in Jungian psychology and not just attitudes like extroversion, introversion, but the very, but something harder to define as the attitude one brings toward conscious and unconscious self. And it's striking what a positive attitude Jung has toward the unconscious, how willing he is to give it the status of a source of wisdom. And as I call it in my uh, subtitle to my book, it, it is a reservoir of consciousness so that the consciousness that we have on an everyday basis is only part of a larger reservoir that we can draw in that reservoir is in the unconscious. So taking up Jung's attitude toward the unconscious, I almost feel that the interesting thing he says about the unconscious is that in effect, it's all consciousness. It's just a question of whether, of uh, what stage of development it's, it's at. Now that may be too extreme a statement. It's certainly not one Jung would have embraced because it's important to let the unconscious also be autonomous. It has to be, uh, creative, it has to be uh, purposive, it has to be real if you're a Jungian. If you, see, if you see all those things, now that doesn't mean that it can't be up to no good. Its purpose can be evil. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's what it's, its reality is that it's gaslighting us. Uh, it, it's uh, creativity can be positively uh, satanic and inf in infernal and its autonomy can mean that all kinds of shadow stuff is going on and after the kind of <laughs> education in what the unconscious can be like that we've had <laughs> politically in the last uh, uh, five years uh, we really have no reason to think that a positive attitude toward the unconscious uh, is entirely benign. We have to also be able to critique the unconscious and recognize uh, that the shadow, though containing the potential of consciousness, also contains the potential for mischief, undermining, and uh, putting people in double binds, confusing them, um, attacking them that so that we we have to see the unconscious as as carrying a shadow that's up to no good as well as positive and hopeful traits that though in shadow now could be the positive future. So we, to be normally uh, sensitive to the unconscious would be to recognize that 
it can be as destructive as it is um, uh, uh, generative and, and, and uh, of, of new potentials for life. We have to have that ambivalence. Uh, Jung came to that very hard. He didn't like Freud's pessimism toward the unconscious. And yet in the end, he also ended up when he reached older age, just as Freud had done, he reached a much more, and I think ultimately healthier attitude than he had uh, in the 1930s when he was still a relatively young, older man. In the 1930s, for instance, Emma Jung uh, had a garden, or Jung had a garden, and it was in their house in Kusnacht, and Jung loved that garden and he had remarkable plants that he put in it. He, he talked, he would show people the rare plants that were in the garden. But when he had conceived of an idea of the self as a center, far more interesting in the unconscious than the ego could be ever as the center of the conscious, Jung had the idea that everything in the garden should be allowed to grow without any interruption at all. That way, the unconscious could just express itself. Well, anyone who's ever held a garden knows that weeds grow faster than anything else and that the weeds choke out all the other life. And so Emma Jung, who had introverted sensation, it was really kind of a, a big argument between them and that she was in despair because that garden would be nothing if she couldn't weed. And finally, she convinced Jung that it was okay to weed the garden. So that's, that's how inflated Jung's idea of an autonomous self that would solve all of our problems. And it's, um, uh, that was not his opinion when someone visited him in 1947 and, and, and he was a, Quaker, uh, young George Hogel visited Hogel, H-O-G-L-E, he's a Jungian analyst in my, my Jung Institute of San Francisco, who originally trained in London, but grew up as a, in a, in a Mormon family in Utah, and then became uh, very much a, a, a Quaker and nonviolent and very much interested in world peace as a young man and, and, and was on his way to visit Russia in 1947 and stopped in Zurich and met, actually met Jung. And Jung was listening to this young idealistic Quaker and, and uh, Jung's eyes, which were small, narrowed and looked at him and said, and what do you think God is? And George Hogel, very sweet man, well, God is love. And Jung looked at him and said, don't you think God can also be hate? And so that was when he had really, that was the, the willingness Jung had to see the unconscious, which for him was where God was as not just benign. It took a long time for him to get to that point. And it's a very similar point that Melanie Klein was articulating in that in that period of time when she began and the way she was talking and, and that, that essential ambivalence that 
is, is necessary for us, but also necessary for us to resolve so that we don't just become cynical that good is always shattered by evil and therefore there's no progress. That was not Jung's point of view. He felt that we could, uh, we could progress, but we had to progress with the knowledge of how destructive we can be. So I think when I try to talk about the shadow functions, I try to talk about the archetypes and show the difficulties they present as well as the opportunities they present. I've got to say that we need our shadow to survive. They are, uh, the shadow functions are self-care systems and it takes a certain amount of evil in yourself to be able to handle the evil that's in the world. So you, so if, if someone, if you're the kind of person who often is put in double binds by other people because you're too naive and too sweet and too eager to please them, and then they give you contradictory expectations and put you in a box, you have to be able to use your own trickster archetype to turn those double binds around or others will take advantage of you. And so the integration of the shadow is very important. At the same time, every time you integrate a bit of the shadow, you have to shiver because you may be becoming more mean, more ruthless, more selfish, uh, and more destructive than you need to be to survive. I think the question is how much, uh, how much? So Jung had room for an understanding that we have to take a bit of evil into our own uh, consciousness in order to survive, but we have to try to dilute it as much as possible. And in that he sounds very much like Mani, the, the founder of Manichaeanism. He denied that he was either a Manichaean or a Neo-Manichaean, but in one letter, that he wrote to someone in 1929, he said there were four fundamental pillars of the human spirit and he named them as um, uh, the Buddha, Lao Tzu, Jesus, and Mani. And Mani was this founder of Manichaeism. He was later declared by the Christian church a heretic. And although he had an enormous influence in a church that was spread from Persia to China and was still being practiced in China in the 19th century. And it was a, he had written all kinds of things and invented a script that he, and, and painting that he could, he did all kinds of things. He was martyred uh, 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 by the Persian empire in the early centuries of the Christian era, and but his influence lasted. Jung singled him out simply because he felt that evil was even beyond God's capacity to control, that evil had an autonomy and it was up to human beings to learn enough about evil, take some of it into their system and dilute it. So dilute it, D-I-L-U-T-E it, so that human beings could do what God himself or herself or whatever God is, is incapable of doing. That 
that, that we have to take on our evil and try to transform it. Uh, now that is quite extraordinary and it will never make Jung popular because the, it's much easier to take a moralistic attitude toward, well, I'm not gonna touch that. I'm not gonna have anything to do with that. I'll be aware of it, but I certainly am not gonna take it into myself and enact it in any way. And that's not Jung's position. Jung's position is that we need the shadow, but, and I, it's my position too, but be on guard because our shadow is none too good. And, and you know, it may, it, there may be something it can do for us, but there's a lot it can do to hurt us. So you really, you really have to know who you are to be able to also touch into what you're not that just likes to do mischief and see if there's good in it or there's something to be integrated, but it's a, it's, it's, it's not an easy process. In the end, you become a more real person and perhaps more capable of knowing when you're up to no good than you would if you didn't try that experiment in integration. But for each of us, it has its dark as well as light aspect. That's all I can tell you. I know, but I, I don't know another psychology that deals with it as fully as, as Jung's. As Jung's, and that's in my idea of type too. And so, what is the role of the analyst uh, in helping someone come face to face with their shadow and deal with it? Well, I think one thing is you can always say, "Well, I can certainly see why you are entertaining the idea of doing this." can certainly see that something in what the other person is doing to you or what the situation you find yourself in or what the organization you're in is, is, is I can see why you would want to make this more conscious. I think you'd want to deal with it. I think you see the danger in leaving it unattended. But can you see that you are also going well beyond your own comfort zone as you entertain this perhaps dangerous uh, idea that just is pouring through you as, as the way to go. And you then have to decide, um, I remember when I was having my first book managed by the publisher, the book I wrote on psychiatric treatment uh, as a co-author with C. Peter Rosenbaum, and I published it in 1975, Psychiatric Treatment, Crisis Clinic and Consultation. And I was taking it to an editor at the publisher, which was McGraw-Hill, and um, I wanted to make changes in the manuscript, and it was she was she was finding me a little tedious because I was rewriting as even in, in galley form and, and page form, and I offered was willing to pay for those changes, but I, uh, I the point was I was being a bit of a pest, and I felt her as someone that I was. Uh, it was coming between me and what I felt would be the best for the book. So I had a dream in which um, my mother had given me a teapot. Uh, my mother and I had lived in China with my father and Chaz, so it was some kind of Chinese teapot. And, and uh, 
this one didn't seem very Chinese, but it, it was it was a teapot, and and out of it came this red tea, which I was going to give to this woman, uh, and uh, and I was and I remember saying to my analyst, I that now my mother, I said my mother would get into fights with people, particularly with women. She could get into quite difficult fights with women. So I think I'm gonna need to use that red tea. My dream has just shown me that. I think what I need to do is 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 put her in her place and be sarcastic and maybe a little bitchy here and so forth and so on. <laughs> My Alice said, no! <laughs> that was Dr. Henderson. He'd been analyzed by Jung and it was exactly what I didn't need to do was deploy my introverted feeling that way. And I think it would have been the end of my, anybody, I don't think anybody would have wanted to publish me after that. And I've had a good publishing record. So <laughs> you, you need an analyst to tell you when you're just too much, you know, and, and that was not helpful to have my poorly adapted, uh, that did not work for my mother and it wouldn't have worked for me, but boy, did it feel like it at the time. And that was a, a lesson. A lesson for me. Thank God he screamed no at me. <laughs> well, I think that might be a good place for us to stop and uh, stop the recording. Well, thank you, Adam, for being a wonderful questioner. <laughs>